Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to our weekly Emerging Revolutionary War Revelry Happy Hour Zoom call, whatever you want to call it. I'm Rob Orson with the Emerging Revolutionary War, and I thank everyone for joining us tonight. I've been looking forward to tonight for a couple of weeks now because I have three uh, friends of mine who are in the public history field that, that are in the field and, and do re- great research, great interpretation. And this topic tonight is going to be an exciting topic. We're going to be discussing Virginia 1781, specifically the events leading up to Yorktown. And we may go a little bit tangential here, but that's fine. We, we tend to do that. Um, if you are watching and you have questions, please put them in the chat box. I will... Uh, watch those throughout the evening here. We'll be here for about 45 minutes, depending on how long uh, Drew's drink lasts there. He, Drew keeps changing his name. Now he's 71st for life. So if anyone's watching those Drew's sentiments, now you know what those are. <laughs> and, and Kirby. Uh, let me introduce my speakers before I get too far. So we are here with Mr. Michael Moore, uh, who is a resident of Yorktown. And I consider him one of the experts in the region, in the Yorktown region. And uh, Michael has been kind enough to join us tonight. And for those who follow us on Facebook, he'll be with us next Friday when a group of us are down in Gloucester um, doing a tour of uh, Battle of Gloucester Point, Battle of the Hook. We'll get to that title later on. But I want to thank Michael for joining us. Then we have Kirby up here in my top left corner with uh, his beautiful collection of hats there in the background. Um, Kirby's been with us before on our ERW revelries. So I thank Kirby for coming back. Uh, I have not had the the uh, pleasure of being on Kirby's Green Spring tour, but hopefully this weekend we'll, we'll be doing that. But I hear nothing but great things about your tour, Kirby, on Green Spring. So we have you here to talk about that and many other things. And then last but never least, Drew Gruber, good friend of mine. Um, Drew usually plays in Civil War circles professionally, but tonight we yanked him into the 18th century, which I think is where his heart lies. But he'll never admit to that, but I think that's where it lies. So... So thanks, guys. So make sure you guys are unmuted because this is kind of free-flowing. Feel free to cut each other off. Uh, the great thing about tonight, everyone who's watching at home, is 
these three men are friends, so we should have a good time. We don't have to get over any um, uncomfortable silence. So I have a couple of questions to kick us off, and then, like I said, I'll keep watching on the chat. Uh, but my first question is, Virginia 1781, the summer of 1781, Virginia. How do we get there? How do we get these American and British forces to the peninsula? Why, how does Yorktown happen? Because if you study the war, um, you know, the Southern campaigns are going on in South Carolina and North Carolina. Then all of a sudden for those kind of passive reservoir buffs, Yorktown happens. There's a big gap there. So how, and anyone can take this. I think Michael, you were talking about this before we jumped on live. How do we get such a, you know, two large forces really in the Yorktown area uh, so quickly. And then that becomes the defining moment of the revolution. Well, the Old Dominion is the largest of the 13 colonies, and Yorktown was the largest port between Philadelphia and Charleston by the early 1700s. And Virginia was a very important part of the Continental Army's Southern Department's logistics, men, horses, material, tobacco that was coming out of Yorktown uh, was being picked up by the French. And of course, that was what was hoping to, they were hoping we're going to help pay some of our bills because we all know the French provided most of the ammunition and firearms that we were using. So a lot of the supplies that were going down to Nathaniel Green and others earlier, uh, most of the Virginia Continental Line got nailed at uh, Charleston. So Virginia was part of the logistical supply and Sir Henry Clinton and uh, Lord Cornwallis and others were going to start attacking it. And after Lord Dunmore left in 1776, Virginia really had been untouched until 1779 when you have Collier's raid. Drew, you look pensive. What do you got? <laughs> yeah, I sort of have spent some time thinking about all this and I can't help but feel bad for Baron von Steuben, who's just kind of, you know, hanging out here. And, you know, of course you have Arnold who sacks the new capital and then Steuben continues to write Washington. He's like, hey, you know, we could, we could use some help here, friends. Uh, you know, and of course he gets a boatload of ammunition that comes down and he writes Washington. He's like, hey, thanks for the ammunition, but like, we don't have cartridge boxes or really any muskets. So like, could you send some of those too? And I just feel like, you know, he's the guy who's sort of like sitting on the proverbial one end of this thing saying, hey, Virginia's important. Hey, there's more British guys here. And I feel like sort of Steuben is, letting everybody know, or at least, you know, letting Washington and his guys know that Virginia is important. And of course, after sort of Phillips, you know, gets his, his moxie in the spring um, and starts to tear things up again, I think people start to take Steuben's constant cries for help with a little more sincerity. I don't know. Can we blame Steuben for this one? Uh, you can blame him for losing point of fork. How's that? <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, can we get there? We can get yeah, there. Yeah, we can. I mean, if you want to talk about it now, I mean, yeah. you're talking about, you're talking about the man. I mean, you can talk about that action, which is, I mean, well, actually, before we do that, uh, to kind of piggyback on what Michael was saying, you know, when you read about Cornwallis, he's writing to Clinton saying, you know, Virginia is where Green's army is getting all these supplies. We have to make a concerted effort in the Chesapeake. Uh, can we have you talk about Clinton? So Clinton is the overall commander of the British forces here in North America at the time. And Cornwallis is, you know, he's Cornwallis is communicating with him. That's his direct superior. Uh, Clinton is back and forth, right? When you read about all the actions going on this summer, you kind of have some sympathy for Cornwallis because he's getting constant different messages from, from his superior. Can you all talk a little bit about that relationship between Cornwallis and Clinton to kind of set the scene for the British? I'm gonna look at my Simcoe supporter up here because you got the British thing going on. Yes, yeah, so I would say, you know, from my perspective, the 
relationship between Cornwallis and Clinton was a little was a little rough uh, around the edges. You know, I think Cornwallis tended to have a higher status in society back in England. Uh, obviously, a lot more connections when it came to Parliament uh, and some of the the royal palace staff uh, and members. Uh, so I think Clinton kind of looked at that as you know being one level below him as far as society was concerned outside of the military. Um, Clinton obviously didn't have the resume and experience that Cornwallis did uh, on the field. Um, and I think Cornwallis viewed the relationship as more of him being an equal. Um, he took orders from Clinton and took the guidance, but he didn't necessarily agree with it at all times. We just kind of see that in the, throughout the Carolinas. Um, but I think Cornwallis is apprehensive uh, whenever he receives orders from Clinton. Obviously, he gets those three different orders um, later on in the, the spring and summer after he arrives, uh, telling him to do different things. Uh, throughout the chaos, we eventually end up at Yorktown, and it takes some time to get there. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great point. Um, so talking about Cornwallis, so as, as Michael mentioned and Drew mentioned, you have different British forces, Arnold Phillips in Virginia doing different raids, burning of Richmond, the fight in Petersburg, the destruction of Point of Fork, um, I'm gonna call it arsenal, Drew. But that's not the right word. It's not an arsenal. It's a. I'm gonna call it supply depot. How's that? Is that okay? <laughs> I mean, they're making stuff there too. So that's okay, which is a very important, um, you know, cultural resource site today. Uh, but so you know, you, you know why Cornwallis is here. But you know, how does he interact with these other British forces in Virginia once he gets here? Right, like he marches up here. He joins with some of these other forces. Uh, you know, what happens to Arnold? Of course, Arnold's not here at the time of Yorktown campaign. Where does he go? And he's, he's here earlier on doing burning a Richmond, you know, doing these numerous raids. Where does Arnold end up and how, you know, how come he's still not in Virginia at the time of the late summer campaign? Well, Cornwallis did not want him. They kicked, I mean, he arrives on January 1st, 1781 right at Newport News Point, right where the shipyard would be today, and then moves up and is involved in the Richmond campaign. And then when, unfortunately, General Phillips, his superior, dies in Petersburg, Cornwallis arrives, and it's he's not only a traitor in the American mind, Cornwallis isn't going to trust somebody that fought like the devil at Saratoga, so he sends his butt packing back to um, back to Clinton. All right, so we got rid of Arnold. And so, uh, yeah, with Cornwallis, how many men does Cornwallis have with him, you know, in the late summer of 1781? Altogether, he's got some of the guys from Petersburg uh, that were there before him, before he got there. How, how, what's his combined army there about? You don't have to give me exact numbers, Drew, because you got that. Drew's got that, like, uh, why is he asking me that face question? I mean, doesn't it, so I'm going to punt this one back to Kirby, but I'm pretty sure he shows up in Virginia with only like 1,500 guys, doesn't he? He's pretty depleted. I, I would put his numbers by the time he links up with Phillips and Petersburg um, at best around 2,000. Okay. And he's yeah. got that string behind him, in the, especially in North Carolina. Right. And, and Lafayette's got about, what, 1,000 men? That give or take mostly militia that as we know aren't very reliable in general um can someone talk about matt anthony wayne one of the questions we had here comments in our chat is about wayne's march um down to virginia um 
which is a kind of a well-documented march. Uh, the, the old state DHR markers, you can still find them. You travel central Virginia, you can follow partially follow Wayne's march down to Virginia. So is, is, do you all feel Lafayette is apprehensive of doing anything with Cornwallis and Virginia until Wayne arrives with these Continentals? Come on, somebody. Come on. Cornwallis <laughs> has 7,700 men once he takes over Phillips Arnold's army. And there's about 3,000, I think, is what Lafayette has. Okay. And he's trying to drag him into the interior. I mean, great for Civil War trails. He heads up to places such as Raccoon Ford and other areas that we'll know about from the Rappahannock campaigns and other stuff. But Cornwallis is the old fox. He's not going to be drug into that sort of stuff. And then once Matt Anthony Wayne arrives, I think, uh, Kirby, when you say he had about 5,000 Continentals and militia by the time Wayne arrives? Yeah, by that time. Um, and the numbers flux so much sure. on Lafayette's side, uh, especially with the Virginia militia, because you're looking at those 60, 90-day yeah. uh, terms expiring. Some men just straight up going home, even though they know there's a threat uh, within the state. Uh, some of them that go back and then they re-enlist or they, they sign up for another 90-day stint. Uh, so it's very much... Uh, a flux throughout the, the entire time that Lafayette's here prior to Washington's arrival. I mean, there's there's one letter from Lafayette where he has no idea where Wayne is. He's trying right. to get ammunition to Jamah. He has no idea where Jamah's, is it, am I pronouncing that right, Jamah is. Um, but, you know, I've seen a couple people hop onto the chat now um, who know material culture better than I do. And I love know, Neil Hurst's comment. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, we, we tend to for, I mean, we tend to forget that these guys are in some cases marching, you know, in in rags. Um, so we can't really blame Wayne, although his guys do mutiny again, don't they, on the way down for pay? I mean, uh, it's details, details, yeah, yeah, details. Hey. They they fought for patriotism and pride, Drew, not, not, not for money. Liberty won't <laughs> wait, Pennsylvania. <laughs> um. So we got Lafayette and Wayne combined, and we're going to get into the meat of this, of this chat here shortly. Uh, so we got you know, Lafayette and Wayne have combined forces. Now Lafayette becomes a little bit more aggressive, um, and you know, they start, and Cornwallis gets the orders from Clinton, and I'm not going to get all of the details, but uh, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, but at one point Clinton tells them, you know, keep a small force in the Chesapeake, but send everybody to me because I'm worried about the French coming up here to New York or up to New England. Um, and so, you know, Cornwall starts to, you know, go down to Portsmouth um, and, and get to the south side of Virginia. So that is when you start having some of the first actions here between the Americans uh, under Lafayette and Wayne against Cornwallis. I think one of them uh, that, I haven't, that I haven't read much about until recently is Spencer's Ordinary. And uh, I looked at Drew and Kirby as my Spencer's Ordinary experts. I know it's such a small action, but it's a really interesting action when you, when you read about the how each side wrote about it after the battle. You know, it depends on which side you read, which is true for any battle, but it's interesting. Can someone talk a little bit about leading up to Spencer's Ordinary and what happens at Spencer's Ordinary just west of Williamsburg? Kirby. Spencer's Ordinary, it happens, it's a small action that takes place on uh, June 26th. So just a, a few days before uh, the big action at Greenspring. Um, the, the 24th, the 25th, uh, you've got Cornwallis moving his forces uh, away from Richmond uh, down towards Williamsburg. Um, a lot of his rear guard is going to come from the Queens Rangers and also from the British Legion and a smattering of other uh, loyalist organizations that are under his, his command at that point. Um, he had complete trust uh, in Tarleton, 
complete trust in Simcoe and their ability to, to screen and maneuver and cover his rear. Uh, but also in, in the wake of clearing that area between Richmond and Williamsburg, uh, they're also sending out a lot of parties to go and, and scour the countryside to gather as many supplies behind them as they can uh, as the army converges on Williamsburg. Uh, Spencer's Ordinary is, is one of those actions that just happens. Uh, Simcoe uh, isn't very trusting of the intelligence that he's receiving. Uh, he's very cautious, even of the intelligence that uh, is coming from the main army under Cornwallis. So uh, there, there's a lot of false reports. There's a lot of unknowns. They didn't really know the terrain as well uh, as they wish they had. Uh, a lot of misinformed uh, intelligence coming through the lines. Uh, and in some cases, some, some double agents, some double uh, some folks that are serving both sides, some who are known, some who are unknown. Uh, but Spencer's is um, one of those actions that happens uh, and it surprises Simcoe. Uh, and I think in his perspective, it's a pretty significant action in itself. So, you know, a lot of people know Simcoe through Drew's favorite show, Turn. Um, <laughs> so talk a little bit about Simcoe, because I think he's kind of a mis, you know, misunderstood figure. I think the show, for all of its good and bad parts, highlighted him in kind of a very negative way. Um, I, I, obviously you're a Simcoe supporter, but what's your personal take on Simcoe? I mean, as far as, you know, as a commander and his role in the war. Of course, he has an amazing life after the war too, but. He does. Um, so, you know, Simcoe is, as far as the, the various leaders throughout the war, especially the, uh, the British leadership here in Virginia in 1781, um, my opinion is, you know, Simcoe's, uh, he's an intelligent leader, uh, not only on the battlefield, but he's also good on the administrative side, um, has proven himself uh, as a British regular officer. He was a major and then accepted the commission and the provincial service uh, as a lieutenant colonel uh, and eventually ends up replacing um, two prior commanders of the Queen's Rangers. Uh, and the interesting thing is the Queen's Rangers were on the British establishment uh, as, as a loyalist regiment and they were authorized to recruit American deserters. So you have a mix of personalities um, throughout the war that are joining this unit, and he's able to rally uh, support, continue to bring in recruits and keep themselves up, uh, up on the establishment. They had to meet a minimum number, uh, otherwise they risked being uh, completely axed entirely and then split up and sent as replacements to other organizations. Uh, but Simcoe, in my mind, uh, a brilliant, brilliant leader, brilliant tactician, uh, one of his best friends, especially during the 1781 campaign, is Johann Ewald, uh, who's in charge of one of the uh, uh, small Hessian companies of marksmen uh, that accompanies the, the army to Virginia. Um, you know, just his ability to see things and then also use a gut instinct uh, was quite different than what you experience, you know, when you read through Cornwallis's memoirs, when you read through some of the other British officers who served throughout the war in North America, Simcoe had a very uh, progressive mindset when it came to adjusting to the war here, as opposed to a lot of the European experience that many of the other officers had prior. Um, we're getting a lot of questions, and I know Drew, you're watching the chat too, because I see you commenting. It's tonight's very busy. I, I, I'm writing them down, but it's going to be hard to answer everything. Uh, one question people are asking is the naval fighting, Battle of the Capes. Um, I did not preface you all for any naval history, so it's okay if you want to punt this, but I'll ask kind of a general question. Would you all go with the common concept, the, the common you know conception by perception of people that 
Cornwallis's fate is sealed by the Battle of the Capes, or do you all think that it's still kind of up in the air, even though the Battle of the Capes takes place where the French Navy defeats the British Navy there just outside of uh, Cape Henry Lighthouse? I mean, I, I'm going to let Michael go on this one, but my only comment is a small one. I feel like even if he had made a breakout in the Gloucester Point line and headed north, there was no way that that fleet wouldn't have caught up with him at one of the multiple other rivers or tributaries. But I mean, we have hindsight, right? So right, of course, well, that's this whole thing is hindsight. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. Um, so Michael, you want to speak a little bit about that? Well, I mean, really, where would he have gone? I mean, if he is going to go across to Gloucester, uh, is one of my colleagues, Colonel Burris, will point out that Washington had already anticipated that and there were boats waiting up further up the York River that were going to take troops over. All you had to do was get up above King and Queen Courthouse, come down toward Adner up the Gloucester Highway, and they could have put significant resources there. The French were shadowing them and could have come right up the bay. And also the... Cornwallis's army was pretty sick. I mean, they had smallpox. Mm -hmm. They did not have enough food. They were running out of ammunition. How were they going to move the troops and material? What kind of horses? I mean, when does Carlton have all the horses shot? That's one of the problems when, how are you going to move an army after you kill most of your horses over in Gloucester and they wash up on the beach where Riverwalk is? So there's a lot of problems that come to play. And I think it's important to point out that the Battle of the Capes did not have a single American on either side. And that I think many people say that that was the battle that decided the campaign. But I don't I don't see how Cornwallis could have really made a very effective escape from Yorktown. And obviously, we know if the French hadn't been able to defeat the Royal Navy, that would have been academic because a week after they surrender, Corn, uh, Clinton shows up with another 7,000 troops and 36 warships. So that would have, you know, been a major coup had they been able to break through. But de Grasse, the French don't get enough credit for that. De Grasse did quite a good job. Right. Yeah, I think more and more as you as as we get to more modern research and scholarship, I think that's being really, you know, uh, reinforced a lot more these days is that you know, I don't know if you all follow Yorktown Battlefield on your uh, Facebook or social media, but they're posting through the anniversary and people kept talking about, you know, who won the who won the siege? French artillery won the siege or the French yeah. Navy won the siege. So I think people are realizing that. But um, so time back into Lafayette and Cornwallis, Kirby, I'm going to go back to you because after Spencer's Ordinary, you have Cornwallis kind of moving south of the James. I wish I had a map of the area to show everybody, but um so as Cornwallis decides to move south side of the James River near Jamestown, uh, Lafayette decides that he will try to strike his rear guard. And Cornwallis, that's a trap for him. If you can talk a little bit about what became the Battle of Greenspring. Right. So just a few days after uh, the accident at Spencer's Ordinary, which is only a few miles from uh, modern day uh, Jamestown settlement. And right around that Jamestown settlement area is the Greenspring battlefield. Uh, that battle takes place on July 6th, 1781. Uh, that is uh, the day after Cornwallis departs uh, Williamsburg. So in force, he's moving his army south. He's following Clinton's orders and instructions at that time, uh, which is to move towards Portsmouth and start embarking a portion of his army to head to New York City uh, as requested. Uh, he knows, especially after the action at Spencer's, 
and some of the smaller actions between that the 26th and July 6th, uh, Lafayette is chomping at the bit. Lafayette wants to be able to send some report back to Washington and New York uh, to let him know how things are going in Virginia. Uh, there hasn't been any major action up to that point between either army. So Lafayette's been paralleling his movements almost the entire time, uh, but also been, been doing a very good job of, of concealing his movements and making sure that the intelligence is as completely unreliable as possible uh, to Cornwallis and also his, um, his pickets, which included Simcoe and Tarleton. Uh, so July 6th, uh, we've got a lot of movement going on. Lafayette's moving towards the, uh, the site of the encampment. So the British Army's encamped around where modern day Jamestown settlement is. Uh, the morning of the 6th, Cornwallis has his portion of his army is moving across the river at that point over to a place called Cobham, uh, which no longer exists, but it's over uh, in Surrey. So they're leaving where the Jamestown settlement glasshouse area is, crossing over to Jamestown Island and taking the ferry from there and using some of the, the Royal Naval support there on the river to get their supplies across. And uh, throughout the day on the July, July 5th and July 6th, a good portion of the Queen's Rangers are also moved across to the south side. Uh, but they're in view. They're in view of the north side of the river, uh, in view of anyone uh, from Lafayette's force who happens to look across. Uh, the reports the, the Continentals are receiving at this point is that a bulk of Cornwallis' army had already crossed and would only be their rear guard left on the Jamestown side of the river. Um, but Cornwallis has set a trap. So at this point, he realizes that Lafayette wants action. Uh, you've got Wayne and his prior experience and knowledge of how uh, Wayne's personality was. Uh, I think he realized that that was his best chance, uh, Cornwallis's best chance to lure them in. Uh, so the stage is set the morning of July 6th. Uh, the English uh, leader is there waiting uh, just outside of his encampment. Lafayette takes the bait. He's chasing uh, the picket line back towards uh, the main army there. Um, and the trap is sprung. Um, Wayne is, is thrown on his heels at that point. So Wayne has about 800 Continentals, um, about two to 300 uh, Virginia militia at that point. And, and most of the militia, if you go back and you look at the pensions of many of these men who are there um, from the Virginia organizations, uh, a lot of these guys had seen prior action. They're, they're guys who had either previously served in the militia in 1775, 1776, uh, or there were men who had seen service in the Continental Line at some point in time. Uh, so that's the neat thing is by the, by the summer of 1781, you're seeing a lot of these guys that are coming back uh, within the militia ranks that have that experience, and many of them are marksmen. Uh, so the Virginia militia who are there at the Battle of Green Spring, in most cases, are riflemen. Uh, and if you look at the numbers, as far as casualties go, uh, the British take, they take a good number of casualties um, throughout the day, uh, a large chunk of them towards the end of the day. So Cornwallis lures Wayne in, uh, puts him on his heels, and Cornwallis had the opportunity uh, to really crush Lafayette and his small army at that point in time. Uh, and I think that's always one of those what-if scenarios. I think we talked about it last time as well as uh, what if Lafayette had lost the battle entirely and lost his army in the process, how would that have changed the course of us getting to Yorktown? Mm. Yeah. And, and there's been a lot of, um, a lot of preservation interp work around that Greenspring area. Um, briefly off the history side, a little bit more preservation side. If you could talk about a little bit about that, I mean, you have the, the church on the main and, and a neat story there. Can you talk a little bit about the preservation that's gone on down there uh, in the past, I would say about 10 years? 
Um, so I know in you know 2006, uh, that was the first land that was actually set aside and preserved. I know Todd Post with uh, the Second Virginia uh, Regiment, um, they were big pushers and movers to to get a portion of the battlefield preserved. Um, that is uh, over that land is adjacent to the 4-H camp. Um, there are some battlefield markers out there across from the horse farm mm -hmm. uh, on Green Spring Road. Um, and then we also have Church on the Main. And Church on the Main is a uh, county property. It's right in the middle of a little subdivision there. Um, that was actually rediscovered by uh, Al, uh, Alan Outlaw, who's one of the local archaeologists uh, back in 2000, early 2000s. Um, so we know that the, uh, the churchyard there contains, um, there's at least a few French soldiers who were buried there after the siege of Yorktown. Uh, and there's also, um, you know, a number of, we believe, casualties from Greenspring that are buried there as well. Uh, obviously, when they found the site, they didn't go through and dig all the graves uh, for various reasons. Uh, but there have been at least one set of remains identified as an unknown soldier uh, on a portion of the battlefield. And what my, my understanding is that was a shallow grave. Uh, they were able to recover those remains back in the 1970s. They went off to the Smithsonian. Um, they were preserved, studied, they were put on display as part of the written and bone exhibit. Uh, and then when they came off the exhibit back in 2016, they came back, back to our area and we decided to uh, re-enter uh, that unknown soldier. We were fairly certain as a member of the Pennsylvania line, probably buried where he fell um, on July 6th. And uh, his, his tomb is one of the few Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers outside of Arlington Cemetery. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can go by church on the main today and it's somewhere we'll, we'll take you all uh, when you come down on uh, Saturday. That's a great spot. Um, take you over there. It's a neat, it's a neat site. Yeah. Yeah. Drew took me there a couple of years ago. I think it was like 10 o'clock at night, Drew, but you know, <laughs> we were very respectful. <laughs> it, was, it was romantic, wasn't it? If you're not doing history by, by uh, headlight, you're not doing it right. Um, all right. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot going on between July of you know, 18, 1781 when uh, the Battle of Green Springs fought all the way up to Yorktown. Um, but one thing I want to ask you all as a general question um, is, and there's much debate about this, is, was your, or is, I guess you could say or was, was Yorktown a, a good spot for Cornwallis to go? I know it's, I know he's given, if maybe Michael, you talk about this, Cornwallis has given two options. And the first one, um, I don't think he finds, uh, you know, acceptable. So he goes to Yorktown. Is Yorktown, was that a good spot? Or did he make his first mistake by going to Yorktown and digging in there? He gets there in the summer with Simcoe. He, ride in, he rides in there and he's not really overly impressed at first. He goes to Old Point Comfort. He actually goes where Fort Monroe is today. And the Navy wanted him to go there, and he wasn't too keen on that. Mm -hmm. And he ends up on August 1st and 2nd, 1781, landing at both Gloucester and uh, Yorktown. But he wasn't really ever, obviously, was not planning to face most of the right. Continental Army and the French Army. No one ever expected the French Navy to arrive, much less defeat the Royal Navy, if you're thinking of it from... Lord Cornwallis. This is a perfect storm for him. I mean, he is a professional military officer. As Kirby said, he's a peer of the realm. He's a member of the House of Lords. He's been in the Seven Years' War. And short of this, his military career has been quite well since then. New York, New Jersey campaign. He arrives in Yorktown and he followed standard British policy. He found a deep water port, which Yorktown by its geography is only half a mile from Gloucester Point. He digs in, 
He's not expecting to be there forever. He digs in between Wormley Creek and Yorktown Creek. He fortifies everything and he doesn't have heavy siege guns, but he's not expecting to face 18 and 24 pounder French cannons. So I think for what his expectations were and what his orders were, he did everything that he was supposed to do. And then the rug gets pulled out from under him when de Grasse arrives and then it just, Everything that could go wrong for Cornwallis went wrong for Cornwallis at that time. What do you think, Drew? You agree? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't disagree with Michael on that one. Um, I mean, at this point, there's no Virginia Navy, thanks to the raids in, in April. I mean, and talk you know. about that. Talk about that a little bit, if you want to. Uh, talk about Chickahominy and the Virginia Navy. What is that? Well, and I mean, that, that... So, so to control Virginia, you, you need boats. Right. <laughs> I mean, especially, we have, Todd, especially Tidewater, Virginia. Yes. Sure. But I mean, even even talking about up into Point of Fork. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. if you get around the rapids, you, you can move most efficiently by way of boat. Right. So, I mean, the, the fact that we have um, Phillips who destroys the Virginia Navy Yard, um, Gosport itself, obviously, is really not factoring into this, at least for right now. Um, and then, of course, after Spencer's Ordinary, you've had Tarleton, who's you know really pulled the plug on most of Virginia's major depots in and around. So, I mean, looking at it sort of critically, Virginia seems like it's kind of a not bad place to be. You got this guy, Steuben, who's got militia, who have no ammunition. They have very few shoes. They, most of their depots have been destroyed. They have no Navy. It, I mean, you know, it seems like a safe bet for me sitting here in hindsight, kind of getting an idea if his intelligence is coming through and it's saying that this is what the situation looks like. I mean, it seems plausible to me, but who am I to backseat general 250 years after the fact? You're Drew Gruber. You can do that. That's why you're here. So talk about the Virginia Navy. You, you mentioned it at the very beginning, the raids in April in the spring. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I mean, living here in Williamsburg, you know, one of the first things I learned when I got here, of course, was not only about the Civil War action, which nobody ever talks about, but all the cool Rev War sites, which weren't Williamsburg, Jamestown or Yorktown. And uh, the few that sort of um, came up to me was obviously Greenspring. A couple of people talked about Spencer's Ordinary and everybody sort of talked about the cool shipyard that was out on the Chickahominy. Um, so it's, I mean, they're, they're one of Virginia's main shipyards, if not one, arguably the biggest one is up on the Chickahominy. It's a few miles west of Williamsburg. And um, it's where the vast majority of the outfitting is happening outside of a little bit of work at Gosport and some work at Fredericksburg. Um, so when Phillips sacks that, although most of the boats get out on April 22nd, uh, they'll be destroyed a few days after Petersburg. I mean, it, it renders Virginia relatively neutral. So that would mean that when Lafayette comes down and he tries to connect with Steuben, or that when Wayne comes down, they're not able to use a system of boats easily in and around the James and York River basins. Um, when you get further up in the Chesapeake, you know, you start to enter into what's being produced by Maryland. But I mean, you know, back to the point of your question, I think the move to Yorktown doesn't sound that bad from a logistical point of view because, you know, Virginia doesn't have the ability to run around you on the water because their Navy's been neutralized. Right. Um, so everybody knows about Yorktown uh, for the most part. Uh, and very little is known about what happens across the river, across the York River in Gloucester. And, and Michael has been kind enough to offer some of us at ERW a tour next weekend next Friday, which I'm looking forward to. The weather looks good so far, knock on wood. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, Gloucester, uh, Michael, why that's such an important 
in, in the in the grand scheme of the siege of Yorktown and uh, you know what happens up there between, of course, we got Tarleton, which makes it an exciting story, but you have other characters as well. Well, you have Gloucester is only half a mile from Gloucester Point is only half a mile from Yorktown, and it had been fortified since the Second Anglo-Dutch Naval War in 1667. So. Gloucester has always been fortified and where they hung some of Blackbeard's crew. So that has Gloucester towns across from Yorktown. General Whedon, I think we've neglected to talk a little bit about Thomas Nelson Jr., one of the seven signers of the Declaration of Independence from Virginia. And one of my, I live right down the street from uh, where Governor Nelson's grandfather's house was and where he's buried. And Governor Nelson made sure that the militia, even when Virginia couldn't pay, he paid their bills and his Lieutenant Governor was his next door neighbor, David Jameson, and he's providing all the logistics. So the militia is coming together up in Gloucester and King and Queen County. General Whedon is there. Then we have the Duke de Lausanne who arrives, who uh, Colonel Burris would argue is the beginning of the French Foreign Legion, obviously not the one we think of, but you have also, you have mounted troops, you have different nationalities that are fighting there and the French come in at Warehouse Point. So they're really reinforcing the Gloucester side of it. And of course we hear about Danister Tarleton. He's, you know, almost nabbed Governor, you know, Jefferson earlier in the summer and Jack Jewett and all that raid and all that stuff. But Gloucester is usually ignored. It's where they had the last surrender. I mean, the last surrender wasn't right, it wasn't Yorktown. The last surrender was actually later in the day over in Gloucester. And the Battle of the Hook on October 3rd, 1781, or whatever you want to call it, Drew. It, it's still a major engagement. And, we'll get there. <laughs> and, and Tarleton sacked the Hardys in the auto zone up there. And Sewell's Ordinary, places that you don't always think of, Warner Hall. And that that is a that's a part of the Yorktown campaign that can't be ignored. And it, it should be better emphasized, I think. Um, do you think, and this is for, I know Drew wrote a, a blog post about this a couple of years ago, or Michael even, or Kirby, um, do you think without the French at Gloucester that they, if I say, I'm probably saying it wrong, um, is it possible for them, is it possible for the Virginians there to defeat the British, or do they, do they need the, that French influence? Because I know, and I think Michael maybe can speak to this, the, you know, the, the, uh, Continentals, the Virginians are asking for more French support up there, even with, you know, the, you know, Luzon's guys getting there, they're asking for more French support. Do you think, and I think Drew, you wrote a nice article about the Virginians who fought in that battle, Bow the Hook or Gloucester Point. Uh, do you all think it took the French and Gloucester to, to hold the British from breaking out? Well, it certainly didn't hurt. Some of the troops from the Grosses fleet landed at Warehouse mm -hmm. uh, Point. They reinforced them. Lausanne brought mounted troops and they, they're professional military officers and soldiers and they're going to bring a level of professionalism. Mercer's Grenadiers certainly weren't bad, but you can't argue with having Europeans on your side, especially when you're fighting against the British. And Lausanne is going to be able to bring a different level, different toolbox to the battle than the Virginia militia will. We think, Drew. I mean, you know, to Kirby's point before about Greenspring, you know, remembering that the Virginians who are on the field aren't these sort of backcountry dudes who have no idea what they're doing. I mean, they've served their time. 
and there's a hypothesis out there that the grenadiers are aptly named because they get on the field and they act like veterans although they don't necessarily look like the line they act like the line mm-hmm. um but you know by the time mercer's guys or even the rest of whedon's infantry shows up on october 3rd luzon's guys had just dead stopped the british effort to move forward i mean they take the wind right out of their sails so as much as we'd like to really um, sing the praises of Mercer's Grenadiers or of Whedon's guys and really tout the Virginia militia um, for being sort of our, our age-old patriots. Um, I mean, Luzon's guys beat them up pretty good before they all got there. So, I, you know, again, going back to the idea of material culture, looking at the supplies, thinking about the critical shape the Virginians were in, or even Wayne's guys or Lafayette's guys, you know, it's certainly nice to have a really fly-looking group of cavalry guys roll out to the field that day and take the wind out of the British sails. <laughs> All about what you wear to the party, right? <laughs> uh, so that didn't hurt either. <laughs> that's true. Uh, looking at some of the questions here, trying to catch up. Uh, we have one question. We have a bunch of questions, but one I'll get to is, are there any Spanish soldiers involved in, in these actions? Well, Silence. The paid for de Grasse's fleet to come up to the Chesapeake, and right. Galvez is down in Mobile and down in Florida. So that certainly had a big part to do with tying up the British down in the Caribbean and the Spanish financial aid, but the Spanish fleet holding the shop while the French, that meant de Grasse could bring his entire Caribbean squadron up to the Capes. That was definitely a force projection change that the British had not anticipated. All right. So we got these other questions here. Um, this is always a great topic for every time we have a talk about military actions. Any uh, Vanessa Smiley, who's a great friend of ours and one of our ERW people, and she puts up with us. Um, <laughs> but she asked a little while back, any, any common myths or misconceptions that either one of you three would like to dispel? Now that you have a forum to dispel a myth. And I think you all have already talked about the Virginians not being just, you know, random backwoods guys but there's anything else and you can even cover we i mean tonight really wasn't about the siege of yorktown and specifically because we've already done that and people know about that but even if we want to talk about something with the siege is there any common myths or misconceptions about you know late summer summer late summer fall 1781 in virginia that you guys would like to tackle hmm. come on Drew, I, or kirby go ahead yeah i'll, I'll throw i'll throw one out there uh and it's it's one until you know, I was working at Yorktown Battlefield. I never really thought about uh, is by the fall of 1781. You look across. Obviously, we know the Virginia militia and their their backgrounds by that point for for a good majority of them, uh, but also the Continental Line. Uh, you look at many of those men, especially looking at the, the Pennsylvania Line, uh, and many of the officers that are present at Greenspring. Uh, many of them, their service goes back to 1775 and 1776. Uh, but I think the thing that really surprised me a few years ago and was the the broad spectrum of people uh, that are part of the American forces by this point of the war. Uh, we all know about Rhode Island, uh, the Rhode Island Regiment, which is combined by that point in the war. Uh, a lot of African-Americans, um, many freedmen, many former slaves in some cases. Uh, we've also got Native Americans and a couple of the regiments, especially the Pequots. Uh, so when you when you're walking through the American camps, that's something I thought about, you know, back in 2014 when I started working there, really digging into the primary sources. Is, is you've got just a smattering of all these different 
types of people, all with different reasons for being there to being a part of this effort uh, to, to win this war against England. Uh, so I think for me, you know, that's, that's the, the myth out there is you've got a lot of, um, you know, white landholding men that are serving in the military, but they're only serving for a short period of time. So you've got experience, you've got um, multiple uh, backgrounds, multiple um, parts of society in there as well. So I think you've got a good representation of the population of uh, the American states there represented at Yorktown. That's a good point. Dr. Gruber. So this one's not necessarily for this audience. I would say that, you know, what being, is that supposed to mean, Drew? <laughs> I'm about to explain, Rob. Um, you know, I've truly after five o'clock when I can punch out of Civil War land, I do a lot of reading about the revolution because this stuff is just fascinating to me. And the dearth of source material, I think, is the one thing that keeps me hungry to want to know more about things in the revolution. But I say this, and I say this with all degree of humility, um, we have a lot of work to do. Because when you're here in Williamsburg, when you interact with visitors, and I hope the other panelists here agree, perhaps the biggest myth is the hardest one to get away from. And that's that the war didn't end at Yorktown. Mm. <laughs> so again, not for this audience, because they know that, right? <laughs> um, but maybe incumbent on, on all of us and the rest of the people watching to remind folks that it may be one of these seminal events, but certainly it does not end the war. Um, I think that for me is the biggest takeaway. And I have a really hard time finding myself to engage with sources after October 1781. So it's a challenge for all of us. That's a good point. Mr. Moore? I think that when you look at the siege of Yorktown and you look at the parallels and you have several different layers of history on top of that, you have Civil War history, you have CCC reworked earthwork. So I think the battlefield itself can be confusing to some folks when they get out there and it helps to be able to get through that. They're wondering why there's a national cemetery in the middle of the battlefield that has something to do right. with the civil war. So I think you need to know that Yorktown has a tremendous amount of history that goes from 1697 through 1781 is the big chapter in Yorktown's history, but it's not the only one. Uh, Lafayette returns in 1824 and you have the 1861 occupation of it by the Confederates and then uh, the Peninsula Campaign of 1862. You have Slab Town with African-Americans that are um, out on the battlefield and then the Civilian Conservation uh, Corps coming in in the 1930s. And they also want to turn the battlefield into a golf course in the 1920s. <laughs> so uh, I think Yorktown, <laughs> when you're out on the battlefield, it does sometimes, and I don't know, Kirby, you might agree with me, Did when you were, did you have folks that were confused sometimes about different landmarks on the battlefield? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it helps, that keeps us all historians employed when we take people out places so that we're able to better. And I think it's important to know that you're on a site that has many different layers of history. Right, right. That's true. And Yorktown's a good example of that. You can drive that park tour road and you see earthworks and they're not, from 1781 you know they're the civil war era earthworks so um another good question here how would you all rate lafayette's job when he's in virginia his his uh, his performance do you give him what kind of grade what letter grade would you give lafayette for his service here in virginia because you know lafayette um 
is kind of held up on a pedestal, right? I mean, he's considered, you know, Washington is, is he's a close confidant of Washington's. He's, as Michael mentioned, he comes back to the States many years later. Um, you know, he's given, he's given the full, I mean, one heck of a welcome, right? Um, I mean, you can almost trace his route throughout the United States by plaques that people have put on historic buildings where Lafayette once stood on his return. But that's kind of hindsight. In 1781, the summer of 1781, and somebody asked somewhere in our chat here, rate his performance. I'll, just let, I'll let Kirby go first, and you can give a letter and a short explanation if you want. Um, yeah, so personally, I would give him, if we're doing letter grades, I would give him an A minus. Uh, not not a, not a full A or an A plus. Obviously, he didn't win any decisive victories uh, directly with Cornwallis prior to Washington's arrival. Um, but if you look at uh, who he is, his age, uh, you look at his his previous military experience. You know, this is the first time that he really has uh, direct command in the field with this number of troops. Um, and he's a French officer in charge of Americans. You've got a smattering of other uh, European backgrounds in there as well. So you've got a couple of other French officers. You've got, uh, I think there's some Dutch, um, see some English. So you've got this broad spec folks that are under his command. Um, you're coming down with Continentals uh, from New England, uh, many of them prior experience up there. Uh, you're coming to Virginia, you're taking over Virginia militia, uh, some experienced, some inexperienced. So someone who's able to come down, take charge of that, and then have their confidence in you uh, at such a young age. Because if you look around for, for Lafayette, I'm sure that you know a good chunk, at least 50% or probably more of those men were older than he was. Right. Uh, you know, and having been in his shoes, you know, being being a lieutenant placed in charge of uh, soldiers who are older than you, that's that's not an easy situation to walk into, uh, especially men who have had prior experience on the field, uh, who may have known the terrain, who may have had uh, questions as far as who you are, why all of a sudden am I reporting to you when you've only been here for a short period of time? Um, but Lafayette's able to parallel, uh, he's able to, to mask his movements, he's able to keep Cornwallis pinned down, um, he's able to keep them on their, on their feet uh, and playing that guessing game long enough to draw things out. So uh, I think he did a pretty, pretty good job here in Virginia prior to Washington, uh, his arrival with the French army. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't give him too much credit, but I would give him an A minus. Right, Mr. Drew. I can't really say much more than Kirby already said, but immediately when you asked the question, I had thought about a B. Um, so I mean, you know, that's close to an A minus for all the reasons that guy just said. You're a tough teacher, man. You'd be a tough <laughs> professor. I tell you what. Well, I mean, you know, so so there. I mean, there are some minor reversals, some loss of collateral in and around the state, but I mean, you can't really blame the guy for it. I mean, what was I doing at his age? I don't, can't really remember. And that just we can't say on this call. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> again, I echo Kirby's comments, except I'm a harsher grader, I guess. Yeah. Tougher. I like it. Michael. I'd, I'd agree with Kirby that he gets about an A minus. He doesn't lose. I mean, he doesn't, I mean, he could have gotten his clock cleaned at Greenspring. He tries to draw Cornwallis into the interior. He holds him here long enough. Mm -hmm. And he's in Jamestown and Williamsburg long enough for the Marquis de Saint-Simon to arrive on September 2nd, 1781 from de Grasse's fleet. And that adds some reinforcements to Lafayette's troops until Washington and Rochambeau can arrive. So I think Lafayette does about all you can expect of him. Uh, the state of the 
the Virginia Continentals are, most of them are captured. The militia are not the bumpkins that you're thought of, but yet they may not have had every bit of supply they needed. And Lafayette, I believe, his military experience up to that time period may not have been that great, but he does show quite amount of promise. And he has an ability to size things up and he doesn't lose. That may not make him the world's greatest general in 1781, but he could have been crushed at Greenspring like a bug and that would have ended the whole deal probably. Right. That's a good point. I agree with what you guys are saying. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's really been studied a whole lot. So I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it because people hear Lafayette and they go, oh, he's a great guy, but no one really can say why, right? Like, what did he do? Um, last last major question. We're about to wrap up here. I have I want to answer, ask one question that somebody asked a little while ago. Any unsung heroes from this time period that we haven't talked about? Uh, someone mentioned Whedon a little while ago. Is anybody else that comes to mind that you all think doesn't get enough credit? We've talked about Simcoe. We've talked about Whedon. Um, anybody else that you all think we should give credit to that people, when they read about this campaign, should think about looking for more information on? Nobody? I mean, I, I said Whedon only because yeah. of that. Well, we'll say that. Let's say why, why Whedon. We mentioned so, Whedon. We didn't go into Whedon. So I feel like Steuben's kind of a hot mess. And again, it's hard to criticize somebody, right? But I mean, he's trying to do what he can do with what he has in front of him. But Whedon's been around for a long time and he knows Virginians. So when they divide Virginia up into these districts where the militia is supposed to report to, Whedon's sort of in command of that district for this section of Virginia. And he seems to kind of keep everybody's calm and everybody's cool. So in the chat, there's also a lot of conversation going about the potential siege that's going to take place around Suffolk or Portsmouth and about mm -hmm. the opportunities that really the Virginians had without any degree of line post Charles. And a lot of this comes back to Whedon and ability to think about how to employ Virginians and their peculiarities with supply and how they make them an effective force in the field. And although that a lot of that comes through that lens of Steuben as that hot mess writing to Washington, constantly asking for these critical supplies, I feel like Whedon is sort of this guy who doesn't get a lot of acclaim because he's he's been in the ground, he's been here, he's gone around, he's made sure that guys who are coming back off of line duty uh, or levy duty are still entering into the militia system, the supplies are still there for them. And then, of course, you know, he really is the one who puts this big, big ordeal together in Gloucester in early October. So I've, I have a lot of love for Whedon. And um, I also have a lot of love for all the artificers who are working at all the varieties of different depots and sources all over Virginia, just keeping everybody supplied. I feel like logistics are something that we never tend to think about. So, um, you know, for for every blacksmith, armorer and wheelwright out there, cheers to you. Drew, um, I think it's going to be trending. Vanessa's asking for a Steuben is a hot mess t-shirt. Let's get them made. Let's get them up. Let's get printed. We can get some really good deals on shirts. We'll get them printed. We'll pass them out amongst the crowd and see what we can go with it. But that's the fourth time you said that tonight. So uh, it's trending. Uh, <laughs> uh, Michael or Kirby, you guys have anybody you want to give a shout out to from back then that you think is kind of overlooked? Ahead, it's okay Kirby. if you don't. <laughs> Kirby, you got anybody? All right. So, I mean, not not to name anyone particularly, but if you look at a lot of the French officers that are on the American staff by this point in the war, um, I think that's that's definitely a, a drastic change from five years prior. Uh, Washington realizes that you have uh, these trained men 
that want to volunteer to be a part of the American Army. And, you know, we're all familiar with Lafayette, but there are a lot of staff officers. So we're looking at lieutenants, captains, majors. Uh, I think there's a couple of lieutenant colonels as well. Uh, they're part of the American staff by the time Yorktown rolls around uh, with their expertise in siege warfare, their background, their knowledge, their training in engineering. Uh, I think that they don't get the credit they deserve as well in the overall grand scheme, scheme of things. We tend to talk about, you know, the work the Americans did. We talk about the work that the French Army did, uh, but we don't often talk about the French that are in the American Army at this point. That's a good point. I would say to talk about what I said earlier, I would go for Thomas Nelson Jr. I mean, he really did spend most of his fortune trying to keep the Virginia militia in the field. He erroneously is supposedly fired on his own house, but uh, he fired it. They, they shelled the Secretary Nelson house, which was his uncle's house, where Lord Cornwallis was headquartered. And I think also James Armistead Lafayette. We haven't mentioned yes. him, because, but James Armistead Lafayette uh, obviously, the Marquis de Lafayette thought he did a great job as a spy in Cornwallis's headquarters and gave him accurate intelligence. And his role, I think, is not spoken about enough. And that and Thomas Nelson Jr. are the and, two people I would say. And uh, uh, Drew's much better half did a great little exhibit on, did a lot of research on uh, Lafayette and his role there as a spy. So. Um, we'll have to have her on just talk about that, Drew. We'll have to harass her, get Kate back on. <laughs> um, all right, gentlemen, I uh, won't keep you much longer. Um, one question I gave you all earlier, and I'll ask again, and Drew's, Drew's been answering this question over here, is favorite favorite book on this topic or resource? Does that have to be a book? It could be an article. I know you all have done lots of research of your own. Um, lots of articles written, so feel free to uh, promote any research that you all have done or any place people can go and, and read more. Because a lot of times we get people that will email us after these and say, hey, love the topic. Where can I go read more about it? And it's always great to have people like you guys tell us that. So, Drew, I know you've already answered the question over here in the chat. Why don't you show us the one you showed us earlier that you like so much? Actually, uh, so I put Selby's Revolution in Virginia in the chat. Um, there's a lot of newer texts that are out there, but... Selby's Revolution in Virginia for me was part of my training regimen at Colonial Williamsburg. Um, it's evergreen. It's held up really, really well. But um, you said no books. So I'm going to no, challenge. It could be a book. I'm just saying anything, Drew. But go ahead. I'm going to challenge everybody to go to revwarapps.org. Revwarapps.org, which is a list of all the Southern campaign pensions. Yes. So if you want to go right to the primary source material, revwarapps.org. And you will spend days and days and days reading the words of the guys who are actually there. And it is fascinating. Um, RevWarApps.org. Good one. Kirby? Uh, I would second uh, Drew's recommendation of the, the RevWar apps. Um, they're constantly updating and constantly transcribing and, and bringing more and more online. Uh, every time I go back, I continue to find and dig in uh, more and more. Uh, as far as book resources go, um, so I think this may have been talked about on another episode, uh, but we've got the Queen's American Rangers uh, right. by Donald Gara. Um, obviously, there are some updates and corrections in, in a few places that, uh, that need to happen. Um, but overall, the book's very well done, uh, covers the, the span of the entire war from the time that uh, the Queen's Rangers are formed uh, to the time they're disbanded, uh, the changes that they go through from uh, their inception with, under Rod. Robert Rogers. Um, 
but we also talk about you know, in that book, I think one of the neat things, and we'll, we'll talk about it while you're down visiting this week, uh, are some of the Virginians who eventually become part of the Queens Rangers, and some of them end up back in Virginia in 1781. Um, but he covers uh, great detail, uh, a lot of names in there, some of them I haven't seen, some of the primary sources that uh, I've come across. And, you know, one of my favorite things about uh, any book that's a secondary source is being able to dig through the back and finding those other primaries that we're familiar with. So my recommendation. It's a good one, Michael. It's always hard to go last. <laughs> well, I I I like the history of Henry P. Johnston, who wrote about the Yorktown campaign in 1881. It's only 20 years after the beginning of the American Civil War, and he's writing about it for the centennial of the America of the end of the American Revolution and he so I think he has an important perspective looking at a hundred years into it I mean it's nothing wrong with looking at 1981 or 1931 or coming up for the you know 250th but I think that's a unique uh, unique way that he looks at the war as being a uniting factor after we just 15 years earlier had ended to the Civil War and it's it's an early source, which is you know which is just as important as anything that's written modern because you know it's much closer to the time period. So, um, so thank you for mentioning that one because I, I I've seen that, but I would not have mentioned that tonight. So I appreciate you doing that. Um, two other books that have come out recently: The Invasion of Virginia by Michael Cecier, uh, The Road to Yorktown, which I have in front of me by John Moss, covers this uh, um, all this activity. So those two books just came out, and I was in the last couple of years. Uh, so obviously, this this you know these these campaigns and fights are getting a lot more attention now uh, than they did 20 years ago. Um, as Drew likes to say, people come to Williamsburg looking for, for looking for colonial, but there's some civil war there too. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I, that just goes into what you know Michael said about the layers of history. You know, this the historic triangle has got so much history down there, even a lot of modern history as well that isn't talked about as much. But um, so thank you, gentlemen, for spending Sunday night with me for this past hour. Um, I want to remind our viewers right now that um, next, for those of you who are on Facebook, next Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, about 10, six to 10 of us from ERW would be down visiting Michael, Kirby, Andrew. Uh, doing some of the things we're talking about today, Spencer's Ordinary, Greenspring, Battle the Hook, Gloucester. Uh, we're even going to go to Great Bridge as well, which is obviously not 1781, but we're going to be covering that. Lots of different videos during that time period, so, so feel free to, to check back us, check back with us um, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of next week. Also, though, don't forget, we are still planning our uh, May Symposium in Alexandria, God willing. Uh, so... Uh, Stay tuned on our website for that. That's our one-day symposium uh, that um, last year was our first year. Obviously, 2020 didn't work out for us to have our second one this year, so we're aiming for May of 2021. Um, also, last thing I want to say is we've done the Sunday night talks every, every Sunday since April 19th, which seems crazy, but we've done that. It's a lot of great content. Um, everything now has been moved over to a YouTube page, so if anybody wants to go back, we have a YouTube page now, Emerging Revolutionary War on YouTube. You can subscribe to the channel. On that channel will be every Sunday night talk we've ever done. And they're actually put in the categories. You can easily find different topics you may be interested in. So all these conversations will be posted on YouTube. And we're working on turning them into podcasts as well. So if you get really bored in your car and want to listen to me and Drew argue about different stuff, you can do that as well. 
Um, so with that being said, gentlemen, thank you all for uh, being here again. Thanks everybody for watching. Be safe. Um, and we'll see everybody next Sunday night. We will be doing a Sunday night ERW revelry. We'll be doing it um, from the, somewhere in Williamsburg and Jamestown, whichever brewery Drew decides to take us to. So until then, we'll see everybody next Sunday. Thank you. This is the way. <laughs> Cheers.